Uh, please remain standing as we read our scripture for today. As you can see, we have two uh, portions of scripture printed here, uh, but I will only be reading the second part if you want to flip your uh, bulletin to the uh, First Samuel 2 uh, chapter passage. Uh, let's read. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would uh, thrust into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the men who were sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let, the, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the man treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make, him for, uh, make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and born three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good, to, uh, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will remediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they will not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will graciously speak in and through Andrew as he opens your word to us. Grant us open ears and teachable hearts, working us to comfort, convict, and encourage by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> we'll get there eventually, right? We are in the study of 1 Samuel. If you missed last week, we did sort of an overview of the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and talked about uh, some of the music of Scripture uh, that we, we hear th- both threading throughout this book and then connecting it with the larger story of Scripture. We talked about Yahweh is, is king. We talked about how he works in history, uh, oftentimes in unexpected ways uh, to bring deliverance to his people. Now we're going to come back and, and we're going to engage these stories in, in 1 Samuel a little bit more directly over the last or the next several weeks. When I, when I say story, understand that I don't mean like a made-up story. Like, like these are true stories. This is God's story as we, we deal with this. Not fairy tales. They're not fables. They're not um, just a book of virtues, but, but rather it is God's way with His people. And as such, uh, we need to come 
with our stories submitted to his story. If you read the Friday letter this week, you probably picked up the quote that I put in there from Eugene Peterson just in his introduction to uh, the books of Samuel in the message. He says, the biblical way isn't just to present us with a moral code and say, live up to this, or simply set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. The biblical way is to tell a story and invite us into this. Uh, this is what it looks like to be human. This is what it looks like to be involved in entering and maturing uh, as human beings. We do violence, he says, uh, to the biblical revelation when we use it for what we can get out of it or what we think will provide color and spice to our otherwise bland lives. This results in kind of a boutique spirituality. God as decoration, God as enhancement, in ways that we want to. We end up picking and choosing between the scriptures. But he says the Samuel narrative will not allow that. In the, in the reading, as we submit our lives to what we read there, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but rather to see our stories in God's story. God is the larger context and is the plot in which our stories find themselves. So I, hopefully you, you, you catch the distinction. You know, if, if, we, if we say that, that our stories are primary, then we approach the Scripture and, and we end up picking and choosing you know, what fits with where we are at that particular moment. But as uh, the, the reality is, we, we have to switch it around. And, and we have to come to the stories ready to hear what God has to say to us. And this morning, the, the stories, both of these, First uh, Samuel 1 and First Samuel 2, speak to us of, of barrenness. Um, if you're familiar with First Samuel 1, you know it starts with Hannah, specifically in her barrenness. We're going to get there in, in just a moment. Um, but there is a, a barrenness in, in Israel as well. Uh, that, uh, there is a barrenness in Israel as well. If you remember, it happens in the time of the kings when there was no king of, in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And, and this caused all kinds of problems. You, you see at the very beginning of, of chapter 1, and you know, these long chunks of narrative, I'll just say as a commercial here, uh, you really, it's great if you have your Bible. Uh, we print what we can, but we can't print everything in there, and so just to be able to to follow along, because the story sort of threads, you know, from one to two to three to four, uh, and, and so if you bring your Bibles, it, it is really helpful. But back in 1 verse 3, you know, we're told that Elkanah and Hannah and Peninnah and their whole system there go up uh, to Shiloh to offer these sacrifices where Hophni and Phinehas uh, were priests before the Lord. So there's this connection here between what's happening with Elkanah and Hannah and what's happening in Shiloh with Hophni and Phinehas. And I want to start there because there's a barrenness in Israel 
especially with what's happening at Shiloh, especially with what's happening uh, in, in the function of the priesthood and in church and, and all of these different things that are going on in the community. And we see it there in chapter 2 as we, we get the story of these worthless men, 2 verse 12. Important word there actually connects us back even further to the time of the judges. If you look in, in Judges 19 and 20, you have a really horrible story there about the men of Gibeah and uh, a rape, and just it's a really horrible story. And, and they're described there as worthless men, uh, scoundrels. Uh, and, and so you realize that this barrenness, this stink, ha- has reached all aspects of the Israelite society, including in the church, including uh, where you would most hope to find holiness, you're finding the same stench uh, that is attaching to all of Israel. See it in a couple of ways in particular here. Uh, one is just the greed that the people have. Uh, verse, uh, just continuing on right there, verses 13 uh, to, to 16, it was tradition and sacrifice that the priests would get a portion of that. It was usually a breast and a thigh uh, of whatever was being sacrificed. If you go back to some of the Levitical law, but here they're going way behind, beyond that. They actually have a... Um, I don't know, a hitman. <laughs> they have a, a, a collector who's going around with this three-pronged fork and, and sticking it into the, the pot, the cauldron, and, and taking whatever uh, would come up. And you notice it's, it's before the fat is burned off. Uh, the fat usually was burned off first, and it would arise, the smoke would arise, and, and that was to the Lord. The Lord was getting the first portion of the sacrifice. But here the priests are taking all that they want, and they're taking it first. Their, their greed, the way that they are uh, literally feasting on the people, uh, is quite quite heinous. And then secondly, of course, uh, we have the, the situation of the promiscuity that comes through uh, in verse uh, 22. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Uh, so Eli hears these things, and, and he's like, guys, what, what are you doing? You know, here people are, are supposed to be coming to the temple to confess their sin, and what they find is that you are there committing sin. Uh, it, it is exactly the opposite of what is supposed to happen. And then Eli somewhat exacerbates this. Um, you know, he's old at this time. We're told in chapter 4 that he's 98 years old uh, when, uh, when he dies, and that may be 10, 15 years after this. So he's probably in his late 70s, 80s at this time, which would mean his sons were in their 50s. You know, they're, they're certainly responsible for their own actions. You know, it's not as if Eli is responsible at this course for his son's actions. And this is actually a really 
sort of uh, nuanced theme throughout 1 Samuel is we see Samuel's sons uh, also struggle to walk after the Lord. David's sons also struggle to walk after the Lord. So this continues to come up. I think with Eli here, you know, he's a good man, uh, but he's weak. And he's particularly weak in his role as a priest. Like he, he should have exercised church discipline on these boys. He should have censured them from their position as priests within the community and not allowed them to continue acting out in the way that he does. But what we realize is, is that this community, Hophni, Phinehas, Eli, they're, they're responding to the barrenness of the time in a way that is only leading to further emptiness. And, and you see that in the way that, that God deals with them. Uh, God deals with Hophni and Phinehas uh, in a way that is leading towards judgment. You recognize that uh, he, he says that he has determined to put them to death. Uh, he is going to give them over, to use the words of Romans 1, give them over to the sin that is in their hearts, to the lusts of their flesh, all of these things, and they will receive the judgment that is due to them. He will make this clear through Samuel in, in chapter 3, and then it will be accomplished uh, in chapter 4 uh, as they receive the just recompense for, for what it is that they are leading Israel into. And Eli as well. Uh, Eli as well, his failure to lead is going to lead to emptiness for himself, uh, for his family, and, and eventually the, the priesthood is going to be taken away from his house. This follows later on in chapter three a por or chapter two, a portion that we did not read, and it will be given to a faithful priest. Uh, I think there are tones of what Samuel will do before the Lord, uh, certainly the house of Zadok, uh, the high priest later on. Uh, the priesthood will be taken away from him. What do we learn from this? Well, several things. Again, as we bring our stories into this, uh, we realize that, A, none of us are above uh, the type of response to barrenness uh, that Hophni and Phinehas have. We see what is in their hearts and we realize uh, that it is, it is just as likely to be in our hearts as well. Uh, seeking to solve our barrenness through what we can gain from our eyes. Remember, the time of the judges, uh, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, and, and certainly Hophni and Phinehas uh, fit that qualification, taking literally the greed, uh, the meat, the, the women, you know, taking what is in front of them. And, and if we're honest, we, we realize that oftentimes we respond to frustration and barrenness in our lives uh, through what we can imagine, what we can see. You know, as we, as we work with our kids, as we uh, go about our jobs, as we operate in society, how are we going to move forward? 
well, I'm going to do it through what I can gain, through what I can know. I'm going to live by my senses, you know, rather than living by what God uh, is, is laying before us, as we'll see with Hannah in just a moment. We also recognize that there is a, a theme to the world that we live in. You know, we live in a world where there's a lot of people that are disappointed with their church, their leadership. They've been hurt by these things. And we realize, like, there is a repeat to, to some of these stories and themes that we see. You know, certainly for Elkanah and Hannah, like, they were there. They had the meat taken out of their pot. You know, they, they knew what Hophni and Phinehas did. They were trying to make their way in the midst of this society. Uh, and, and there is part that recognizes that it, it's not the society, it's not the religious people that are, are there over us that our hope is in. You know, Hannah finds her hope, we're going to see in just a moment, in something deeper, something more true, something that goes beyond and can encompass what these frail people do. None of that takes away the sting of it. I'm sure, you know, there's so many people, you're just going to see how, how, you know, as we go to chapter 4 to 6 and we see the whole incident with the ark, see how painful it was to be an Israelite at that time. Uh, but, but there's a reality there that threads through. But it's not the greatest reality. Uh, the greatest reality is that God is king. And, and that was what the Israelites were failing to recognize, and that's what we're invited to see, especially through the, the story of Hannah. I want to take us there back to chapter 1, so it's printed for you largely in your bulletin, uh, but you can also look at it in your Bibles. Um, the, the situation is given to us in, in verses 3 to 8. Uh, Hannah was barren. Uh, she was the wife of Elkanah, probably a very wealthy Israelite. We see that in just the ways that he goes to Shiloh. Uh, he has two wives. He's able to support uh, the two wives, the sacrifices that they bring. So there, there's a lot of substance uh, with Elkanah and his family. But there is emptiness and pain with Hannah. Uh, she does not have any children. And of course, this, you know, in that ancient Near East society was, was such a, a stigma. There was a, a social shame. You know, every time she went to the market, every time she would go out into public, people would see her alone, and, and there was a, a looking down on her from, uh, from that perspective. I'm sure there was relationally just a loneliness uh, that... Uh, a mother would have not having children to raise and, and how they uh, feed into our own sense of who we are and, and just relationally to be able to have that child. There's, there's no heir for the family, uh, which may be why Elkanah married Peninnah. But the, the, the children, the, uh, particularly a son, they, they would be the ones that would learn the trade, go into the family business. They would take over and, and they would be the financial security for the future. There was, there was none of that. And, and Peninnah would rub it in. 
And it says in verse 6 just how irritating this was to Hannah. That, that's a strong term there in verse 6. Uh, literally, it says, you know, it, it thundered within Hannah. Uh, it's actually a word that keeps coming up in the narrative. We, we see it in the song of Hannah. We saw it last week, you know, how the Lord thundered in response. But, but Hannah's discomfort is, is thundering within her. And where is she going to go? What is she going to do? Even Elkanah can't comfort her. He tries to. Uh, we... we we applaud him for his going to Hannah, seeking to listen to her and say, listen, I, I love you. You're worth more than, than ten sons to me. But that is not meeting her where she is. And then we're told in verse 9 that she arises or she rose and she goes into the temple and she prays. And what, what I find so encouraging and so instructive in this is how the Lord meets her in her prayer. First of all, just note that her response to her bitterness, or her barrenness, her bitterness, the, the thundering within her, her response to that is to bring it before the Lord. I, I'm not sure that that was necessarily her first response, but we see in, in verse 9, she finally says, this is where I need to be. And, and she brings it before the Lord, and, and she, in the midst of this prayer, it seems, she, she sees clearly and she gets things straight in her mind. She was deeply distressed, prayed to the Lord, wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, which seems to be language from Exodus 3 verse 7, uh, connecting back to the, uh, to the time of the Exodus, the cry of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. Uh, she says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, you know, when we read this, we're like, is she making a bargain with the Lord? Is she saying, like, I will serve you if you do this for me? Uh, I don't think that's exactly the best way to read this. I think what we see here with Hannah is her submission uh, to the plan of the Lord. In her prayer, she recognized that she needed to be submitted to what he was doing and how he was leading in the course of history. And you know, this is something that every Israelite woman would have been aware of or would have prayed for was that as she brought a child into the world, that he would serve uh, God's greater purpose, uh, that the Messiah, that the, uh, the saving of the world would come through her child. And so Hannah submits to that, and she says, Lord, I, I don't want a child just for myself, but I want a child for you. And for your purpose. And, and as she releases that, uh, she finds that she is in a different place. You know, we're, we're told then, uh, after she is done praying, she gets up, 
Uh, she goes on her way, she eats, and her face, verse 18, was no longer sad. She surrendered to not her own needs, but to what God was doing, and she was willing to step into that and say, God, however you're going to do it, this is, this is where I need to be. Because if you think about it, uh, I use the word surrender. You know, if she gives her child to the Lord, she still doesn't have the social stigma fully taken away. She's still going to the market alone. People are saying, you still don't have this child. She doesn't have the relational connection, you know, that she might hope for with the child, somebody to talk to uh, day by day, month by month, because the child is separate from her. She doesn't have uh, the financial security. This child isn't going to learn the trade. He's not going to learn the family business. She is surrendering her own needs in order that God might fulfill his purposes. You know, I think about this again. We, we bring our stories into the Lord, you know, and how, how is it that we pray for things? I mean, a good desire, Hannah's desire for a child is a, is a good desire. But if it is only focused on what she can get out of it, you know, then we take a good desire and we make it into an ultimate thing. It, it becomes kind of an idol in our lives. And we do this in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, we certainly can do it. Desire for children uh, can be that way. The desire for a spouse, the way that we think about our career. All of these things, they, they can be really good things, things that God calls people into. Uh, but if they become all about us, uh, and what our needs are, what our wants are, what our desires are, and, and they're not, you know, brought into the broader picture of what God is doing in His story and, and how our stories serve His story, then like I said, they become ultimate things, and they actually then sit on the throne of our hearts. Uh, they become kings and queens, our desires do. And so God invites us into seeing the, these stories and, and truly surrendering them to Him. And it's interesting, you know, God grants Hannah's desire. So her response to barrenness leads to fullness. God grants Hannah's desire, and in doing so, He pushes forward the story that He is writing through this boy, Samuel. You know, it's a, it's a dark picture in Israel at the time. We've talked about Hophni and Phinehas. I mean, can you imagine, you know, going to church and having your offering taken away? Can you imagine uh, the, the sin, you know, happening at the fringes of the temple? And, and you're all aware of it, and you know that you have these despicable leaders, these worthless men. Uh, you would begin to lose confidence in who God is. And maybe some of you are in that spot. Uh, you know, maybe your, your hopes are, 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 are really mitigated, maybe even dashed, you know, because of your experience in church or just the culture. Uh, you, you see the, the darkness pervading all around and you think, is God really at work? You know, could he really be doing something in the midst of all of this? 
But God is, and He does, and He continues to work. You know, Matthew Henry said, sometimes God hides, but He's never absent. And you get a sense of that here in this story. All of this is playing out, but there's the boy, Samuel. Uh, the, the boy, the, the one who is weak, he's, uh, he's not influential, uh, he's in the temple, he's serving, he doesn't necessarily have a place of prominence. But remember, you know, God works in unexpected ways. You know, we hear that theme music, dun, 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 dun. you know, and it connects us to, to the storyline that is going throughout out the Scriptures, and, and you see it just interspersed throughout this. If you look at your, your passage, you, you look at 128, you know, Samuel worshipped the Lord there, 211, uh, the boy ministered in the Lord in the presence uh, to the Lord in the presence of Eli the the priest. Or verse eighteen, Samuel was ministering before before the Lord. Verse twenty one, the young man Samuel grew uh, in the presence of the Lord. Literally, the young man Samuel grew with the Lord. Now the young man Samuel content, continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. One twenty-six, And then three, three one. the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. You know, so intentionally here, the author takes all these little threads and in the midst of all of the darkness, he keeps saying, there's a boy. You don't know him. He's not very prominent on the scene, but God knows him, and God has a plan for him. And in the midst of all of this barrenness, there is a fruitfulness that is, uh, is, is growing, that is ripening, that is getting ready to burst forth into the story in a way that is going to support God's purposes. Two things. Well, maybe three things about that. You know, the first is, you know, do you believe this? You know, we, we need that encouragement because we look around and, and like the Israelites in the time of Hophni and Phinehas, we're like, what in the world is going on? Everything just seems to be going, you know, horribly and heading in all the wrong direction. Do you believe that God hasn't left the scene? Do you believe that God is still working? Can you take confidence in that? Can you know the, the threads uh, that God is weaving into his story? Secondly, and I, and I say this to those of you who, see, who feel weak and inconsequential, maybe even to some of the kids here. You, sometimes you feel like, I, you know, church is for the adults. It's all, all of these different things. But, you know, God... God is, is not limited in who He is going to work through. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need a large bank account. You don't need to have all of the, you know, the gifts that you see other people have. God, God will use anybody. 
Uh, and God can use anybody. And, and we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that though you may not someday fulfill a role that Samuel fulfills in the society, that, that God is, is willing to work in and through and use your gifts. And, and maybe you are exactly what the church needs. You know, this church was longing for somebody to stand forward and, and take a stand, you know, to, to get rid of all of the wickedness and to stand for righteousness. Samuel does that. Samuel responds to, to the Lord. He, his words are established. And, and so don't think that we don't need you. Uh, we, we need you, and, and God may be preparing you exactly for a role that is yet in the future, but a role that is desperately needed. And the last thing I'll just say is this. You know, when we read that, that Samuel was ministering before the Lord, and he grew in, in uh, grace uh, and favor, in stature with both God and man. We, we hear that music again, right? Because this is exactly who the story that we are being connected to. Luke 2, 47. And the young man Jesus was in the temple and he grew uh, in, in, gra in grace and stature and favor with God and man. It, it's almost a, a direct quote uh, from this story in Samuel. A and we are to recognize that what God is doing here in micro in Samuel's story, God, God is doing in history in macro in the story of Jesus. Uh, because he, he, he is there and he's working in the shadows. He's hiding, but he's not absent. Uh, Jesus had no former comeliness that we should admire him. He was a boy born to a virgin in an Ottawa town in Nazareth. He died an ignoble death on a cross. Uh, he, he didn't have the might or power of Rome. He didn't have the religious backing of the, the system in Israel. But yet on that Roman cross, God was, was accomplishing all His holy will. And it's interesting, it's humbling to realize that while Hophni and Phinehas received the recompense for their actions, it was the Lord's will to put them to death. The Lord Jesus receives the recompense for our actions because it was the Lord's will to crush Him for all who will believe in Him. So as we walk through this story, we're invited to bring our stories into it. They're, they're stories of barrenness, but where will we go? Are we going to live by our eyes, what we can see, what we can get, what we think we know? Or are we going to surrender to the Lord who is weaving together a story that is so much bigger, so much greater than anything that we could ever ask or imagine? Will we hear the music? Will we hear the music of God as He takes the weak and foolish things of this world in order uh, to bring to shame, to bring to naught, 
the strong, and the powerful? Will we surrender to Jesus? Do we hear the music of our King? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, the way that it, it comes and it overarches all of the hurts, the disappointments uh, that we have, and it invites us to put our faith, to put our trust in you, to remember that while you may be hiding at times, you are never absent, and that you are continuing to work out your goodness uh, for our good and for your glory. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not despise the cross, but that you were willing to go there in order that you would be crushed for our iniquity and in our place. Lord, we pray that you would help us like Hannah uh, to surrender, uh, even in our, our disappointment and our bitterness, to surrender to your greater plan, to put our trust in you. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.